Greetings, film freaks and cinema sinners. Welcome to Popcorn Prattle, the most fiendish film talk podcast on the dark web. Conjure a few spirits, sit back, and listen Boom, as Boom, we- house! Steven. What? I was doing a thing. Well, I know, but you were I don't get to do, do this often. Just let me do my thing. But, 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 but. Yeah, it's okay. It's too late to turn back on this now. We just have to roll with it. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Popcorn Prattle. I am not Marcus Sally, as you can probably tell by the sound of my voice. Marcus is unfortunately not able to join us tonight. So, taking the reins, Stephen, I did it. I took over the podcast as I wanted to all along. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And just in time for our Halloween episode. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Lindley. Um, I'm going to be guiding you along on our spooktacular Halloween episode of Popcorn Prattle. I'm excited. Um, If you don't know already, Popcorn Prattle, we are a film talk podcast, not in a pretentious way, but just like you're talking with your best good buddies, and I'm here with one of my best good buddies, Stephen Bailey. Stephen, say hi to the, the ghouls at home. Hello, ghouls at home. Ooh, that was frightening, Stephen. Why, thank you. Ooh, I'm really excited about this episode because I don't know about you, but Halloween is one of my favorite times of year. I love it. I'm a theater person, so I'm always finding a good excuse to dress up in costumes. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just dress up because I can. Steven, you do you. <laughs> Marcus, now I know why this is so hard for you. <laughs> hi, Marcus. Um, but yes, hi, Marcus. And hi, Dave. We're getting that out of the way. So, ladies and gentlemen, because it is the Halloween episode, we're going to be talking about all of the spooky things today. Uh, first, we're going to be discussing some of our childhood-ruining horror um, I guess visuals or movies. Not Sanctus. some of the things Sanctus. we're going to be talking about aren't Sanctus. necessarily. Sanctus. Yeah. <laughs> was, that, <laughs> was that some spooky background sorry, sorry. music you got going th- on, yeah, Stephen? Yeah, yeah. I thought that would be some appropriate mood music for the <laughs> for the Halloween themed episode. Well, let's not scare away our listeners just yet. Oh, uh, so, okay. yes, we're going to be talking about childhood ruining horror movies or media. Uh, per se, uh, then we're going to be having a little discussion about the evolution of horror. Where has it come from? Where is it now? And what we think is on the horizon. And for... what was that noise? What was, what was that? Was that <gasps> something behind me? <gasps> oh my gosh. <gasps> Boo! Haunted house! Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. uh, how does he do it? How does Marcus do it? I don't know. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Marcus. And then finally, to round us all off, this is something I am really excited about because I've talked about my love for this story, for this book, for this movie several times on the podcast. Uh, We're going to be talking about Dracula. Listen to them, the children of the night. What music they make. 
Oh, I'm so excited. We did get some news about a new Dracula coming our way from the uh, creators or some of the writers of the recent Doctor Who and Sherlock. Uh, we're going to be talking more about that later, so you definitely want to stay tuned. In the meantime, if you haven't already, if this is your first time listening to Popcorn Prattle, first of all, welcome. You picked a great episode to listen to. Um, while you're at it, why don't you just hit that follow button on wherever you're listening to us to, either on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, we're everywhere, Steven. We're like a poltergeist you can't get rid of. We're everywhere. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Popcorn Prattle. We're on Instagram at Popcorn Prattle. We have a film discussion group on Facebook. So after you follow us, after you listen to the episode, why don't you go and follow us on there and we can talk movies. Maybe not so spooky movies. We can talk about uh, not horror movies. We can talk about Marvel, DC, Oscar bait movies. Whatever you feel like. We can talk about it there. Well, Stephen... You ready? I am so ready. Then let's prattle. All right. So there's been so much goodness in the world of horror, especially growing up. I don't know about you, Stephen, but even when I was a little kid, I loved Halloween. We always did kind of a like a bobbing for apples party in our neighborhood with all the kids before we would go out trick-or-treating. So... Mm. This time of year has always been really special to me. It continues to be special to me. Uh, but my childhood was also rather horrifying because there was some scary stuff out there when I was a kid. A lot of scary stuff. Oh, yeah. So much scary stuff. And we're going to talk about some of those things today. <clears throat> um, maybe not necessarily things that you would expect, like goosebumps or are you afraid of the dark, which were fantastic, by the way. We're going to get into some of those stuff now. Steven, what was one piece of media, either a movie, a TV show, that just scared the living daylights out of you as a kid? So, okay. Um, there was a movie uh, that was based on the uh, true story of a soccer team uh, whose plane crashed in the Andes, I think, uh, and they had to resort to uh, eating some of their, uh, deceased passengers from the plane crash. Wow. Um, which is a horrifying story in and of itself. You watched that when you were a kid? Yeah. Yeah. I watched some pretty messed up stuff as a kid. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, yeah. um, it was, a it was a movie version of Alive, uh, was what it was called. And, um, while I didn't watch the whole thing, actually, I got very freaked out by the plane crash scene. There was just something about it. Like, you know, there's these people and, and I had no context for what I was about to watch. Um, you know, I'm just sitting there. My parents are watching it. I'm probably playing with some toys on the floor. Next <laughs> thing I know, everyone on the TV screen is screaming and the plane is like thrashing them all about and ah. pushing and throwing them out like the window and and now, like, the back falls off, and they go flying out of that. And it was one of the freakiest things I had ever seen. Because it was like, you know, as a kid, you think, oh, you're riding airplanes to fly around. Mm -hmm. But then to kind of see that be, like, your first, like, 
not, I hadn't even ridden on an airplane before. And just to see something so horrifying, like, oh my God, I'm never going to ride in an airplane because of that. Are you afraid of flying on an airplane now as an adult? Uh, you know, I am, but I actually, <laughs> but hey, hey, there is a happy ending to this. Okay. I did face my fear this past summer Yay. and I rode on an airplane, not once, but thrice. Wow. Um, Proud of you, Stephen. Well, thank you. Proud the, of you. Um, yeah. Uh, went to go visit some family out in Portland, Oregon and had to take a five hour, uh, five and a half hour flight, I think, out there. Um, and the whole way it was just turbulence the whole way, but, um, coming back wasn't as bad because it was actually two connector flights. Um, so I faced my fear and it was good. Well, good for you. I'm proud of you. It still doesn't change the fact that that image <laughs> scarred me for life. <laughs> and that is what I think is going to happen. Oh, you're going to be having a nice airplane ride next thing you know. And you're flying out the back. It was horrifying. As you do. As you do. Well, I think for my first pick, I'm going to go a little traditional. So this was back when I was a kid. Uh, Me and my parents were still living in North Carolina at the time. And it was around the age where I had gotten too old for trick-or-treating. And Mm trick-or-treating has always been a big thing. So I was too old for it. So my parents decided, hey, instead of going trick-or-treating... Let's watch a scary movie. You'd enjoy that, wouldn't you? And even as a kid, my parents had uh, exposed me to the original monsters like Dracula, Werewolf, Frankenstein. Had them like on VHS, and it was great. So once I got too old for trick or treating, they decided to show me like modern horror movies. And by modern horror, I, of course, mean John Carpenter's original Halloween. (gasps) Oh, I love that movie so much. Michael Myers was my first slasher film and has stuck with me to this day. And I remember (laughs) my living in North Carolina... The way our living room was set up, we had a couch, we had kind of a a little chair, and then my dad had this huge green chair. It was called the big green chair. We used to joke about how we didn't need a Christmas tree. We we would just put ornaments on the big green chair. Mm -hmm. So my friend came over on this Halloween, and we were watching Halloween. And me and my friend, we started off on the couch, just eating some candy, living our best life. By the time the movie was over, both my friend and I were snuggled up next to my dad in the big green chair, terrified out of our minds. (laughs) He thought it was the funniest thing. I always remember the scene where Jamie Lee Curtis's character is going through the house and finding all of her dead friends, and the Mm -hmm. body swings down from the doorway. Oh. That... I, I, ooh, it was not a fun time. I mean, I really, really do love that movie a lot. And um, I, I remember the, that scene being like, that's when like every, like the whole movie has been building up to that point. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah. It helps with, to realize now as an adult watching this movie, just the amount of suspense and how great that suspense was that it built up 
to that moment and that payoff, that scare, it's so good. It's so good. Yes. I I, I think I think suspense is very important. But as a kid, <laughs> like okay, like how old were you? <laughs> I can't remember. I was in I think I was in middle school at the time. Mm-hmm. Maybe like eleven or twelve. Oh wow. I wanna say yeah. I wanna yeah, around that time. See, I didn't actually get to see that movie until I was um Oh gosh, I think I had just graduated uh from college actually. Mm-hmm. Like I missed out on that movie oh, wow. growing up. So yeah. Um But yeah, that's interesting. Um you know, that actually kind of reminds me of a horror movie that uh my family didn't have any problem with letting me watch as a kid. Um, oh. <clears throat> and this kind of leads actually into my uh second traumatizing uh movie i guess actually i think i'm just going to call this a traumatizing movie trilogy so fun fact my dad he loved to scare the heck out of me a lot as a kid (laughs) um i was a pretty gullible kid i was easily impressionable um yes uh, (laughs) i'm sorry marcus isn't here i have to assume the roles that he has left in his wake. Marcus, I hope I'm doing you proud. Go on, Stephen. So, yeah, like I could be, you know, just sitting in my room and, you know, my dad, just give you an idea of the sort of uh, jokes he would pull. He'd go over to the fuse box and flip the breaker to make my television turn on for a split second and then right back off. Stop. And, of course, I have no idea how breakers work at that age. So I'm just playing with my little Jurassic Park toys going like, ah, I'm going to eat you. And all of a sudden, <laughs> my my TV goes, <laughs> to which I drop and go, ah, what the hell was that? And my mom has no idea what's going on. And she's like, Stephen, watch your damn language. And, and then my Steve, dad comes in. He's show. just... Yeah, he's just standing there near the breaker, yucking up, going, and (laughs) that was just the sort of pranks he liked to pull on me. So uh, to tie it back to this, um, when I was like three years old, he was like, hey, Steven, want to watch this movie with me? He pulls out this VHS tape. It's called Child's Play. He pops it in. Now I know. Now I know why you have such a fear of Teddy Ruxman. Yes, yes, this is exactly where it's born from. <laughs> Teddy Ruxman, Chucky, uh, my buddy, I, uh, I think that was his name, my buddy, whatever. Uh. Any kind of doll with a face that talks, they're all the devil, okay? <laughs> Every single Every one of single them. Every single one of them. Oh, you got the nice little talking My Little Pony, Satan. Okay, so... Um, yeah, we're watching this movie, and I'm like, it's this weird sort of like I'm simultaneously terrified every time Chucky comes on and he starts screaming, Aah! and it's like horrifying. <laughs> but like the cinematic lover uh, aspect of me is kind of imp- like amazed by the animatronics. I'm like a three year old kid going like, oh, this is so awesome and terrifying at the same time. It's like, so like, and like, I don't know what it was. I was a messed up little kid because I would be like glued to the television 
but also covering my eyes. Like, I can't look at it, but I can't look away either. And then <laughs> I think the worst time was when Child's Play 3 was on TV. And uh, my dad, he left it on, but then he locked all the doors in the room in the house. So mm-hmm. I couldn't go leave the room. I had to stay in the living room with the TV. And I was too scared to go turn it off because I was afraid he'd come out of the television and get me. <laughs> I was Your dad's idiot. a little sick. <laughs> I know. No offense, Mr. Bailey, if you are somehow <laughs> listening to this, but what the heck? <laughs> well, you know, and it wouldn't be the last time that happened either. I think um, that's actually how I ended up seeing Jurassic Park at like the age of four in theaters. Okay. So it did some good. It did. It did. You know, I think, you know, I, I look back and laugh at it now, but I think, you know, it definitely kind of helped prepare me for better, more mature horror things, you know, later on. You hear that, um, ladies and gentlemen? Terrify your kids. Traumatize them. It'll make them appreciate film even more. It's like a little booster shot for the real horrors of the world. Oh my gosh. We're not going there because it's Halloween, not uh, doomsday. (laughs) Speaking of real world, my next one kind of has to do with real world things. And it's not a horror movie. It's not like a slasher. It's not a monster. It's Mother Nature. Let me tell you, one movie that I was allowed to watch, mostly when it came on TV, was Twister. Was Twister. And that movie, seeing such a monstrous force at work and the destruction it could cause, made me scared of every weather thing imaginable even today like i hate storms i i can't i'm just like no 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 just clear out please no lightning no thunder no thank you but it got to the point where every time it would rain i would be so afraid that a tornado was gonna pop up or other movies that had volcanoes in it like a volcano was just gonna somehow uh just pop up in the middle of the foothills of North Carolina and cover us all in lava because I was that irrational, freaked out child. I was scared of everything. Oh, man. You know, I love Twister. I love Twister. But you know what got me so afraid of volcanoes, though? Wasn't a movie. Wasn't anything. It was that stupid Jimmy Buffett song. (laughs) But I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> but Twister was the one that sparked it up because that's it's not made up. Mm-mm. It's not fiction. It's not a made up monster. Things like that are real and they do affect real people. And the thought of that because of that reality was out there. It scared me. It still scares me to this day. And yeah. I have and I have Bill Paxton to thank for that. <laughs> Thanks, Bill Paxton. <laughs> it's not going to land anywhere near us. It's going to land right on us. Uh, game over, man. Game over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, <clears throat> it's interesting because that actually, and I'm not trying to jump into the next topic yet, uh, evolution of horror, but um, it is kind of interesting because at that time, um, 1994, 
five or six? I think it was six, right? When that movie came out? I'll, I'll double check that, but keep going. Um, anyways, yeah, it, um, yeah, it, uh, at that time it was kind of like nobody thought like a supercell, uh, could grow like that and mm-hmm. spawn all those tornadoes successively. But then in 1999, that actually did happen. Um, there was a huge tornado outbreak, very similar to what happened in that movie. Yeah. And, 1996, um, by the way. 96? Okay. Yeah, 96. <clears throat> I loved that movie. I saw it twice in theaters, but I, I do sympathize with you there, Lindley, because I'm terrified of tornadoes, too. Um you know, back then, if you really wanted to see a tornado in person and be safe, like not actually seeing a real one, but uh, getting a glimpse of one, usually you'd have to wait for like the six o'clock news and see if somebody had captured dramatic footage on their, like their home video camcorder. Yeah. So it was kind of a novelty to see a movie about it. Um, but uh, yeah, no, to this day, I I, to- I agree Whenever it starts thundering and lightning and we get severe weather alerts, I always get nervous because it's like, if there's a tornado, uh, my house is not exactly the safest place for one. Um, No crawl space. Uh, There's a center part of our house, but there are definitely windows on all sides of it. So, uh, oh boy. (laughs) Um, hope uh, Hope it's a weak F1 that doesn't come anywhere near me. Um, but yeah, you know, it's interesting you pick that because my third fear is actually based on a really crappy TV movie, oh. uh, but it deals with a real existential fear that I still, you know, kind of lay down at night worrying about. Um, that was this movie called Asteroid. I don't think I ever saw that one. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. <laughs> it was bad. You just went into like a Christopher Walken. Count your blessings. Uh, name them one by one. <laughs> Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Actually, I was going for Andrew's sisters, but hey, <laughs> that, hey I'll take Christopher Walken. <laughs> um, no, it was a really cheesy movie where like, you know, an asteroid's going to hit I don't know, Texas or something. So everyone goes to the other side of Texas and then the scientists do some coordinates and they go, Oh no, we miscalculated. It's going to that place where everybody just moved to. And it's, it's like the asteroid hits at the end of part one. And then part two is all about the rescue operation. And it's a really dumb movie, but it did get me wondering, like, how would we, survive an asteroid like i mean we're lucky if we catch a glimpse of it before it comes and hits us but like we don't know what all is out there there could be one hurtling right at us right now and we don't know that's not terrifying at all steven thanks for that (laughs) well what can i say boo haunted house oh god (laughs) for those of you playing the popcorn platter prattle drinking game at home please take a shot every time steven says boo haunted house drink responsibly (laughs) but yeah no it's like i mean and it's it's a thought like sometimes i'll be lying asleep you know trying to fall asleep and i'll just think like oh god what if like an asteroid like comes through the roof and like hits me right in the head right now 
Like it would be coming at such a high velocity that it would, it wouldn't just like knock my head off, but it would like burrow it deep into the ground. And like, I'm just thinking like, there'd be no way to survive this. And it's a horrifying thought. Yes. Dark thoughts as a kid, Steven, probably because you're a dad. Well, yeah, probably. Now, how does that make you feel? (laughs) Ah, you know, (laughs) being an adult now, I have to say, it's made me realize that, you know, hey, there are some mysteries of the universe that we don't have quite figured out yet, but we do have the brain power to figure it out. And as the movie Armageddon has shown us, It is very possible to assemble a ragtag team of oil drillers, send them to an asteroid, drill 800 feet into an iron plate, drop a nuclear warhead, and have uh, Bruce Willis wait till the last possible second to blow it up and save us all. So I know it can be done, because movies wouldn't lie to me. (laughs) No, just throw in an Aerosmith track and we're all good to go. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Now... Speaking of TV movies, um, my last one, it's a little unconventional. It's a little strange, but so was Nickelodeon at this time in the 90s. (laughs) I remember, and listeners, if you remember this as I do, please let us know and let me know I'm not the only one. And I, before uh, we started recording, I had to look up what the name of this was, and it almost traumatized me to look at these images again. But back in the day, Nickelodeon did this, like, kid director, like, kids make a movie kind of short film thing. And one of those movies, some sick kid out there made a movie called Attack of the Giant Vulture. It scarred me. (laughs) The basic premise, and it started with a title card that said Attack of the Giant Vulture, and this humongous, freaky-looking vulture popped out and, like, started, like, gnawing at the screen. Oh my god. It wasn't animated. It wasn't animated. It was a guy in a suit. And the whole movie was just this random giant vulture chasing these kids through a city trying to eat them. And it ended somehow ended up with like the vulture being barbecued and then the kids ate the vulture. Oh, that sounds messed up. It was messed up. It was messed up. And just, just the image of that stupid giant bird popping out of the screen trying to eat me every time. <laughs> every time it came on, I would scream and like beg the channel to be changed. I couldn't watch it. It scared me so much. I've just Did, got this image now. This? That does sound familiar, but now I've just got this image of a bird coming on TV going like, I'm going to eat you, Lindley. Like like hitting the camera, trying to break the screen. It had a voice like that. It would go, it was was awful. And I'm shaking talking about it right now. Oh man, Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon, you're messed up. 
It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Audience, if you remember Attack of the Giant Vulture, or if you have another childhood ruining piece of media that you remember, let us know. Either comment on this podcast or join our Film Talk discussion group and let us know what freaked you out as a kid. Special preference will be given to those who experience Teddy Ruxpin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, Stephen, we've talked about a lot of different types of horror from nature, slashers. So we kind of want to have a discussion about the evolution of horror itself. Mm-hmm. And that there's, it's not an easy topic to talk about because it is so vast. Yes. Because horror in itself, yes, it is a genre, but what scares someone is so subjective. Mm-hmm. And when you look at through the histories, look when you look at history, when you look at the horror genre, it changes so drastically. Yes. When when I first think about the beginning of horror cinema, at least, and we're not talking about the horror genre because that spans so much from literature, from old wise tales, all this, it spans longer than we have time to talk tonight. Yes. We could teach a whole college <laughs> course and a whole, we could, no, we could teach a whole college degree on this topic if we, we, could. If we had half a mind to. Yale, Harvard, we are available for your lectures. Yes. Uh, but when I think of the beginning of horror cinema, my first thought goes to those classic Universal monsters. Yeah. Of I think, you know what the one that always, to me, doesn't get enough credit? What? It is the 1925 Phantom of the Opera. I, I was just going to say, <clears throat> it's not the first of its kind. Uh, or it's not the first Lon Chaney film. It's not the first kind of scariness, but it's the one that I think put that struck the mold, that created the mold and inspired others to do so. Yeah. When that movie first came out, and if you go back and watch this film, it, it might not bother you. The unmasking scene when Christine first rips off the Phantom's mask. But back in the day, people would faint. They had had to leave the theater. And that movie had such an artistry, too, in Lon Chaney, who did his own makeup, who put such a drive into his performance. Mm -hmm. It wasn't gimmicky. This was his art. And it showed. And I just think, I think that's a great image of the beginning of horror. It is. And, you know, I have to say, I agree. I don't like every year around Halloween time, I always get excited because they start putting out the whole horror movies on Mm -hmm. Blu-ray and DVD. And each year I try to collect like one that I haven't actually gotten before. Like in years past, it was Dracula and Frankenstein. And then Mm -hmm. I think more recently, I actually just got the Blu-ray for Halloween and Aliens. Mm -hmm. Um, Different, different era, but yeah, Phantom of the Opera, I never see it out. 
Yeah. Uh, and and if I do see a copy of Phantom of the Opera out, it's not the one you're talking about. No, it's, it's the 19... 19- Joel Sch- Oh, well, Joel Schumacher. Yeah, I see the Joel Schumacher one out. I mean, that's a horror movie in it of itself, but that's a topic for another day. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I have noticed that Universal, when they put out their box sets, and they do include the Phantom of the Opera, they don't include the 1925 silent film. They skip and go towards the 1943 Technicolor version starring Claude Rains. And yes, Claude Rains does make a fine Phantom, but that movie, it does not get scary or mm-hmm. like suspenseful until the very end. It it's much more of a uh, like there's a lot of comedy in it because they decided, hey, our Christine character should have two two gentlemen, a an opera singer and an officer fighting for her affections and then she ends up with nobody because she prefers being a star. And it also started the trend of the phantom being disfigured by acid or some other accident instead of him, him being born to form, which I think kind of takes away from the character of the phantom itself. But it always makes me wonder, why do they choose to promote that in their box sets and not the 1925 one? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because it's not a talkie. It can't be because it's in black and white because you think of Frankenstein, you think of Dracula, all black and white. Well, I wonder, is it is it a universal production? Yes, it is a universal production. It is? Yeah. In Universal Studios, um, especially in the Hollywood version, the the Opera House, it was a big controversy a few years ago that the Opera I, House I set yeah. was finally torn down. But in the early days of Universal, the Phantom, the Lon Chaney version, was a walk-around character. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. It is interesting. But a lot of them, a lot of the Universal monster movies, they have kind of the same quality to them. They they have the same formula. And a lot of that goes with, um, I can't remember the actor's name right now, but he plays Van Helsing in the Bela Lugosi Dracula. He plays that same character in a few of those movies. I call him Mr. Exposition. (laughs) <laughs> he is he is like a helper or one of the archaeologists in the mummy with Boris Karloff. He is he is Frankenstein's teacher in Frankenstein. Which also I watched that a while ago. Um I went to go see a double feature of Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein, which is hosted by the amazing people at Universal Monster Universe. Uh, mm-hmm. If you don't follow them on Facebook or Instagram, please do. Uh, I noticed that Victor, they named Victor the Frankenstein's friend. Like, he wasn't Victor Frankenstein. He was something else Frankenstein, and they called Victor his friend. <laughs> Frankenstein and friends. Exactly. <laughs> it just sounds like an early 90s kid show. Frankenstein and friends. Oh, and it had like a really bad intro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like Scooby-Doo, uh, a pup named Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, you know, going back to what you said about how horror is subjective, I think about, you know, I think back actually to the silent film era before that. Um, well, actually, no, I take it back. It's not before that. It's around that same time. Um, <clears throat> and, of course, you've got classics like uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, mm. uh, Caligari that, you know, really, you know, set the stage for how visually impressive things could go with uh, set design. And obviously its influence was German Expressionism. Yeah. Um, there is, uh, and of course, you know, Nosferatu, which in my opinion is uh, maybe just a skosh, not as good as the Spanish Dracula. But, uh, True. Is... Spanish Dracula is like a teensy bit more risque. Yeah. It's the same set, same costumes, just they could and, get away more because the censors would allow them to. Yes. And it was shot at night. Mm-hmm. So it adds to the atmosphere. The trade-off is, of course, it doesn't have Bella Lugosi. But, you know, everything else, they're allowed to show more emotion. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, there is that trade-off. Um, but there's actually a French surrealist short film from 1929. And I'm going to mispronounce this name, but it's called Un Chien... Uh, Andalou, and it's described as a silent surrealist film, but I would ar- honestly argue that it introduced some basic elements uh, that would later get used in horror. Um, one idea of horror can be where, you know, a lack of a, you know, tangible plot and progression of story, you know, that in and of itself can be frightening. And this film certainly has that. It doesn't really follow a necessarily a direct plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 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 very surreal. Um, I'm reading it uses dream logic, according to Wikipedia. I haven't seen the whole thing, but I have seen one scene that will make you go, "Wait a minute! This was made in 1929, and it is a practical effect shot." Of someone taking a razor blade and slitting a woman's eye open. Oh, no, 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 no. It's no. horrifying. No. <laughs> it's It was like, it was painful to watch. And it's like, whoa, this is a silent film? <laughs> um, yeah. But it it is nerve-wracking. Like, just to, oh, God, I'm just getting goosebumps thinking about it. You're giving me goosebumps. I'm sorry. <laughs> but... <laughs> But like, I mean, you know, a lot of those early films did kind of introduce, you know, tropes, especially ones from the pre-code era. Yeah, Um, they do have a lot of tropes. Like you have, it's kind of like the classic film tropes. You have a dashing hero, you have a damsel, and you have the creature, which mm -hmm. sometimes those creatures can be a little bit sympathetic, but still horrifying at the same time. Like you think of Frankenstein, um... He he was sympathetic, especially in Bride of Frankenstein. He's given a little bit more character. Um, Imhotep was trying to save his love. Uh, you have the Phantom. You have the Wolfman, who was uh, an innocent guy, just bitten and turned into this monster. I think Dracula is the only one you can't say was very sympathetic because, like, no, it's like blah blah blah. <laughs> yes, yeah. I saw that. <laughs> yes, I stole that from Hotel Transylvania, which is surprisingly a pretty good movie. Um, but then I think you skip forward a few more years. We've mm. gone past 
the realm of these monsters. We're, we still delve with these monsters in the 70s, especially with Dracula and Christopher Lee. But you think around the 50s era, that was the year of the creature feature. I'm yes. talking like the thing, uh, it came from outer space, the fly, the blob. What, what do you think changed? Why did we go from these classic monsters to just the blob? So, you know, you really do have to kind of look at stories as in movies as being a reflection of their societies at the time. Like, just an example of this, I'm actually writing an essay. Yes, audience, I write essays because I'm boring. Um, and I do it for fun. Do you, you want a cookie um, or something? What do you want? I just want to be validated. <laughs> Love me. <laughs> Love me, people. Love me. <laughs> um when the okay so like when the Grimm brothers you know they recorded you know all the fairy the folk tales um and originally they were just you know trying to uh just you know preserve the germanic oral tradition or whatever but they realized you know a lot of kids are reading these stories and they're incredibly violent um the original versions um mm-hmm. like i think in the i think and i could be misremembering this but i think in one version of Cinderella, like one of the stepsisters, in order to try and get her foot to fit into the uh, glass slipper, mm-hmm. uh, cuts her own heel off. Yeah, another one cuts off her toes. And then yeah. after that, their eyes are pecked out by birds. Thank you, Stephen Sondheim, for letting us know that. And Into the Woods. <laughs> for kids. For kids. But, yeah, but you know, that's what they started realizing was... You know, we need to tame this down because, you know, families are reading this. And so the changes they actually started making in their later versions of their uh, collection of fairy tales uh, reflected German values at that time. Suddenly, uh, it wasn't an evil mother anymore. It was the evil stepmother uh, because, you know, they wanted to preserve, you know, the traditional marriage roles. And so we have to make the stepmother the evil one, not the mother, because she's the cherished role. Um, anytime there's not a mother, it's an evil stepmother. Um, uh, the uh, the woodsman was added at the end of Little Red Riding Hood, uh, and that again kind of you know reinforces the man's role as the heroic one who protects the family. Um, you know, little things like that, um, and it's no different with cinema. Uh, is the point I'm trying to get here. Yeah. Um, 1950s, post-World War II America, suddenly we're getting on into the Cold War. There's lots of red fear, paranoia. and I The think, atomic bomb. Yes, the atomic age, which, by the way, was a scary time because people really had no idea how dangerous it was. Um, like, they were literally, there's a book that uh, I think everyone should read. It's a funny book about growing up in the 50s by Bill Bryson. It's called The Life and Times of Thunderbolt Kid. Um, (laughs) And he perfectly captures why it was terrifying to grow up during that time. Because everyone was like so excited about the atomic age. They would like run ads saying like, pretty soon our soldiers will be able to carry an atomic gun in their pocket. So instead of just shooting the bad guy with a gun, you can shoot him with a nuclear warhead. It's like, that's like, a good idea. Yeah, well, they, at mark? one point they thought it was. Um, 
there they was counted um, their chickens a little too much before they hatched. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, that's actually where the um, the phrase for the bikini came from when they did. Uh, it, it's really kind of in bad taste, honestly, when I think about it. But um, the um, one of the last major nuclear tests, I think, was Tsar Bomba, which was the um, I forget the exact details, but I think like somebody forgot to carry a zero in their calculations and instead of it giving off like uh, when they tested the bomb, they tested it over uh, the Bikini Atoll uh, Islands, uh, and they um, somebody forgot to do something with the math. And so instead of giving a yield of like one to the power of ten, it gave like one to the power of a thousand. And oh, so the geez. bomb was like, yes, it was like like a hundred times larger than they were expecting. They had to evacuate everyone off the islands. I think to this day, there's only there's only five caretakers still living on those islands. Everyone else had to evacuate. Um, And I think it was actually the moment where people realized, you know what? These nuclear bomb things probably weren't such a great idea. (laughs) And and, uh, that certainly is reflected in a lot of the movies of the time. You know, the monsters that are usually made from like atomic radiation this fear of aliens, you know, a metaphor for the Red Scare and mm-hmm. uh, Soviet Russia, um, or I guess the Soviet Union at the time. And um, so, yeah, you know, the films, I think, at that time really do reflect the fears of that time. It's like they kind of changed from like where it was, I would call, you know, like the universal monsters. That would be the golden age because that was where all the yeah. original tropes and scenery all got started. And then, I don't know, you probably call it the Silver Age. Or um, the Atomic Age. I like the Atomic Age better. That's, yeah. <laughs> um, Coin it. Trademark. Popcorn Prattle. Done. Yes. Yeah. Popcorn Prattle presents the Atomic Age of Cinema. Kaboom! <laughs> oh. Never say kaboom again. <laughs> yes, ma'am. But then, you know, it did kind of evolve further from there because, you know, color and the censorship was getting more lax. And so, you know, we started getting a lot of Hammer films with, you know, more blood and they could get away with a little bit more uh, than what they could in the earlier movies. Um, Yeah. There's... uh, Hammer is such a, a weird topic because you go from... Hammer, you get to some of like the trauma films that some of them can be really gory. I mean, we think of the stuff that we've gotten recently in today's time, like Hostel or Saw. It really wasn't as groundbreaking as some of the things that came out in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. I'm thinking like, uh, like the Christopher Lee era Hammer films, but there's... Andy Warhol tried his hand. I don't know if he directed or produced, but he has a version of both Frankenstein and Dracula that are disgusting. Oh, man. I won't go into detail. Um, You can look this up for yourself if you want to. Um, But... If you ever see the Frankenstein version, you will never be able to hear the word gallbladder the same. 
Oh, God. And I'm going to <laughs> leave it to your imagination. You know, oh, boy. So Andy like, Warhol's Frankenstein and Andy Warhol's Dracula. It was like one, it's called Flesh for Frankenstein, and the other one is Blood for Dracula, I think. I just know Flesh for Frankenstein. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Well, it was rated X, <laughs> so I guess it was probably not uh, the Frankenstein I'm used to. I haven't, I haven't watched all of it. I will say that I've only watched bits of it, and I'm just like, nope, no, 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 nope, no, nope, 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 <laughs> nope, 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 nope. Um, I don't know if the videos are still up, but one of my favorite um, internet personalities, uh, Kyle Calrin, he, I think he used to be known as Owen Citizen. He did reviews on all of those movies, and they're great. So if you want a kind of dumbed-down version, go watch those. Highly recommended. Or, like, dumbed-down as in, you don't see mm. everything. You get yeah. a taste of what it is, but you're not exposed to the grossest parts. A taste of the blood. Yeah. But, like, how did that happen? <laughs> How, how did we go from the blob, which is literally just a bunch of goop chasing people, to mm. th- to the Hammer era? I don't know. You know, and I I really do think you know, um, a big part of it had to do with doing away with the Hayes Code mm-hmm. of production and the adoption of the MPAA, um, because suddenly. When you had a rating system that told people essentially what would be in movies, um, you know, you no longer really had to worry about, I don't know, moral outrage over things. And, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not the MPAA rating system works is a whole different topic for another time. We could probably teach a college degree on that as well. <laughs> We're teaching um, a lot of college degrees tonight. Yes. Yes, we are. Um but, you know, I think the trend really just from then on was, you know, towards more sensationalism, um, you know, for a while there, you know, the films got bloodier and gorier. Um, and every once in a while you'd get a movie like Halloween mm-hmm. that, you know, really focused a lot more on the subtlety and suspense. Yeah. And, and I think that talking about Halloween, I think we're kind of now getting into a sort of renaissance for the yes. horror genre, because we've gone from we've gone from the Hammer, uh, the the Atomic Age, and now we're getting new monsters, not the yes. ones we've known from literature or from lore, but we are now creating new things to terrify us, to keep us up at night. I'm talking Michael Myers, um, Freddy Voorhees, or Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees. It's it's and amazing. Chucky. And and Chucky. Charles Lee Ray. Cannot forget Chucky. How could we ever forget Chucky? Because he won't <laughs> die. Because he keeps coming back direct to DVD. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's kind of, you know, I don't want to say, you know, that's where the horror genre is today. Oh, no. Uh, only because there are occasionally you know, original things that come out, but you're right. It's whereas like the seventies and eighties, we got a fresh slew of creative things. Mm -hmm. Most of the time nowadays, it's either a remake of something or a low budget sequel uh, or 
once in a while you will get something new and original. Yeah. And, you know, usually they do stand out. Like, um, I know The Conjuring was one that a lot of people were talking about a few years back. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, I think, you know, kind of keeping an eye out for some of those is good. Um, Same. Yeah. I What I love about kind of the 80s, the 90s era of horror is that we began to see new tropes forming and the breaking of old tropes. Mostly when I'm talking about new tropes forming is that when you have your Halloweens and you have your screams, you have new tropes of here's a group of teenagers. They all have characteristics. We have the jock. We have the virgin. We have the cheerleader, all these kind of things. Mm -hmm. We have those tropes beginning. But then I think of something like the movie Alien to where we used to have the damsel, you know, being saved by a hero. You get characters like Ripley who take that trope and stomp on it. We're finally seeing women not being the screen queens of cinemas but taking action in this genre yeah and that's one thing i do appreciate about this era of horror now going back to more modern times like we were talking about with things like conjuring and insidious there is one film franchise and i've talked about my distaste for this but it also goes back to what we talked about of how horror reflecting our times and that is The Purge. Mm-hmm. I personally, I'm not a fan of The Purge films. But I will not deny that the concept is interesting. And the concept does indeed truly reflect, I think, some of the things we're seeing in our lives now. Where I won't deny that, you know, we're kind of divided as a country right now. And to have a movie that's supposed to be a, a just a horror summer summer movie reflecting that brother against brother, citizen against citizen, I think it, it continues on that tradition of horror reflecting our true fears, not of so, not of a creature, not of something fictional, but of something real. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think what we can take away with this is that this genre, horror, horror is indeed subjective. And it's going to continue. It's going to continue. We're going to get new icons as the years go on. I mean, we think we've gone from people like Dracula. We go from Michael Myers. We now have people like Jigsaw. Mm -hmm. So the icons are going to carry on and it's going to continue to develop as our world does. Any other thoughts on the horror genre, Stephen? No, I I agree. I think it's going to continue to evolve um, to reflect, you know, the anxieties of the times. And, you know, I think, I think you also have to kind of 
you know, step back to and realize that nothing works exactly in isolation of just one genre. Like, okay, The Dark Knight. I would not classify that as a horror movie, mm-hmm. though I would say it has some scary moments uh, because it does reflect, you know, social anxieties of the times. Um, and I think, you know, if horror filmmakers are going to be smart, they're going to find a way to reflect those anxieties on a subtextual level, like Halloween did and like Nightmare on Elm Street did. And, you know, find a way to bring back that deeper level of reading uh, so that it's not just, you know, a body count movie or who can up the ante and have the most creative kill, you know, because, I mean, those are always forgotten eventually. Yeah. Um, but bringing back the subtext to horror, I think, is important for it to continue developing. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Mm. Can't wait to see what happens next. Can't wait yeah. to go see this new movie co- that came out. Everyone's talking about it. It's called Halloween. And it's uh, oh, apparently a, a sequel to another movie called Halloween. <laughs> It, it's Which a, makes no sense. It's a, <laughs> it's a sequel to a sequel called Halloween that also ignores the, how many? Let's see. You have Halloween two, Halloween three, Halloween four, four and five, five and six, which and had two H2O, versions. And then H two O started a new timeline. It's I think there's like five different timelines now. This <laughs> this franchise has more timelines than the Flash. <laughs> and I don't understand how this has happened. Oh yeah, yes, we're definitely gonna go. Need to see that. Glad to have Jamie Lee Curtis back in the horror game. And yeah, now we've talked a lot. We, speaking of. Halloween and some horror icons. I am so excited to talk about one of my favorite horror icons, Dracula. He's coming back. And not in an untold dark universe way. But before we get to that, ladies and gentlemen, we have a little promotion we would like to do. We always like to shout out some of our friends in the podcast world. So stick around, guys and ghouls. Listen to this uh, from our friends, and we're gonna be we're gonna be right back. So stick around. What's up and welcome to the Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries promo. My name is Josh Cannon and I'm here with my co-host Mike. Say hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. All right, now that we got that hacky joke out of the way, uh, did you guys know that we were the first fan podcast for the show Unsolved Mysteries? Uh, Josh, that's not entirely true. It's not? Uh, well, did you guys know we were the first Unsolved Mysteries fan podcast to get an official cease and desist letter from John Cosgrove and Terry Moyer, the executive producers from Unsolved Mysteries? Uh, that actually might be true. In fact, it's damn true. So yeah, if you like Robert Stack's voice or it gave you nightmares as a child, this podcast is for you. We re-examine cases from Unsolved Mysteries and have even interviewed people from the show. But we don't only cover Unsolved Mysteries cases. Sometimes we explore interesting stories or documentaries such as the West Memphis Three and the Church of Scientology. We release a new episode every Monday and you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, or even on the deep web. So how are we supposed to like end this promo right now? I don't know. Um, all right, I, I guess I'll give it a shot. I, I love you.
That was the wrong choice. Welcome back, uh, ladies and gentlemen. We're so glad you have stuck around, or at least we hope you did. <laughs> Marcus, how we doing? We're doing okay. Hello, Dave. Well, Dave, Dave I we can haven't hear your said voice. hi to Dave yet. Dave, how we I doing? Can, you I always can hear like your to hear voice, Dave. Well, not actually. I can't hear Dave's voice. I can hear Marcus's voice saying that he can hear Dave's voice. So <laughs> you know, it's like it's like a it's like a six degrees of Dave or something. I don't know. Can, can you see Dave shaking his head right now? I can see I can. Marcus shaking his head and going like, "What the damn hell." <laughs> <laughs> is that your best Marcus impression? No. <laughs> we'll, we'll work on it. We'll work on it. Uh, but it came out recently. We're going to get back into our topics right now. It came out recently that the BBC is developing a new miniseries based on Dracula, one of my favorite horror icons, and it's going to be helmed by Doctor Who and Sherlock's Stephen Moffat. Sat on his toffet. Sorry. (laughs) Curds and whey? Stephen. I don't know. It was funnier in my head. And that's where it should stay. (laughs) (laughs) You You get a break from Marcus and you still can't catch a break. I know. I'm sorry, Stephen. We were going to rule the podcast together. (laughs) I never said together. You turned against me. <laughs> so soak. Okay, now we're going into Star Wars territory. Let's get back on track to Dracula. Uh, so I'm, I'm really excited. I'm, I'm excited and a little bit scared for this because I, I love the first three seasons of Sherlock. I'm a big Doctor Who fan, uh, but especially when it comes to Doctor Who, Moffat has a track record of either creating some of the best episodes of Doctor Who, like Blink, and then some of its kind of downfall in story when, you know, when we're talking a little bit about the Matt Smith era. I'm not saying the Matt Smith era is bad, just, you know, Stephen Moffat has had his hits and misses. And this isn't the first time Dracula has been turned into a television series either by the BBC or otherwise uh, there was that one TV show with Jonathan Rhys Myers a while back and it was oh oh it was something special it was something special indeed because it it had my favorite trope of making Mina Harker or excuse me Mina Murray as she was in this Mina Murray the reincarnation of Dracula's dead wife. Thank you, Francis Ford Coppola, for that. It had that trope. Lucy was in love with Mina. What? Like, but Mina was scared of that, and then Lucy vowed revenge against Mina because of that. At one point, kissed Jonathan... And, like, Jonathan was, like, really uber jealous. It was a weird TV show. It only got one season. 
it was a guilty pleasure to watch. It came out when I was in college, and me and my roommate used to love to watch it. But now looking back at it, I was like, okay, now I understand why this only got one season. <laughs> and this is in the BBC's first version of Dracula. I think they did a television movie a while back. And they also did one that had Dan Stevens as Arthur. And he was the sort of antagonist in the whole thing because Arthur married Lucy, which in this version, for for goodness sake, was not played as a loose woman. It was married to Lucy, but they couldn't have sex because Arthur had an STD of some kind and he thought Dracula's powers could cure him and then he went mad. It's weird. That. I don't remember any of that in the book. <laughs> no, because because it's not in the book. Dracula, because it it it's it's like Phantom. It's been interpreted a lot of different ways. Hmm. A lot of these horror literatures, you know, they don't tend to always stick with the source material. Sometimes, you know, it does have a good result. Sometimes, like this version, it yeah no no just just yeah know. like like I'm not against making changes to something, especially if it's been done a million times, but just to make changes for the sake of changes, mm-hmm. I mean I don't I got a problem with that. Yeah, you know you got to honor at least the spirit or something. Don't make it unrecognizable, mm-hmm. and definitely don't make it bad. Exactly. And sometimes I don't think they mean to make it so bad. It just comes out that way because of either studio interference or, you know, trying to get those box office bucks or you got to get those views. And then you lose the intention of the novel or the true effect of the story in the first place. Mm. So, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what we want to see out of this new Dracula miniseries. I have a lot of opinions on this. I think the one yes. thing I definitely want to see, I I need to see some strength in Mina Harker. Mm-hmm. For so long, she's been stuck in this trope of being Dracula's either love interest or the reincarnation of a dead wife. It needs to stop. We need to go back to Bram Stoker's original novel and see just what a good character she is. She's a friend to Lucy. Um, She's really intelligent. She's smart. And she is a target of Dracula, not because he is in love with her or it's some love that's Bands over centuries or whatever stupid tagline you want to use. <laughs> no, she's a target because she's a threat. She is part of Van Helsing's little Dracula fighting club. <laughs> and he takes <laughs> any bites her to get that connection with her to throw them off and to weaken their group. So I def- I need to see a change in Mina. Mina, to me, I think is going to really put this miniseries in perspective. Mm. 
What about you? What do you want to see? This is a weird one, but you know how the novel was framed as like letters? Yeah. I want to see that honored some way. Yeah. I Not... think like Francis Ford Coppola tried to do that. Yes. I don't want to see it like that because he made it boring. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little too much of it. I, I, I almost want to see something like maybe each episode ends and begins with a letter. Or maybe like each episode begins <gasps> with like a summary of the previous episode in the form of a letter. Something creative like that. That would be interesting. Maybe from um, a different character each time. Yeah. Like, maybe again, s- like it is in the book. Yeah. Um, because uh, doesn't like, okay, it's been a while since I've read the book, but doesn't like the first half, it's like from Jonathan Harker's journal. Yeah, then... it's about him going to Transylvania to meet with this person who's yeah. bought this land in England. And then all of a sudden, this person is suddenly climbing down the wall of his castle. And there's a bunch of and... <laughs> yeah. ladies trying to bite him. And uh, and I think he's got like a Mark Twain mustache in the novel too. Oh yeah, <laughs> Dracula has a sick mustache, guys. Did you yes. know that? <laughs> it's it's a great novel. But then, like, doesn't <laughs> it transition to other people's letters in yes. the second half once they get yes. to London? I think um, yeah, a lot of so... it is actually from Doctor Seward's perspective. Oh, okay. okay, well. Yeah, just something like that. I think to kind of honor that spirit, I would really like to see that. Me too. And I agree. I don't want to see this um, Mina's the reincarnation of Vlad the Impaler's lover. Who I hate was, it. I hate it so yeah. much. I hate it. Like, like, okay, that's that's the big thing I don't want to see. I don't want to see this weird attempt to connect it to things in actual history. Mm-hmm. Like... No connection to Vlad the Impaler because... It's been done. We know. Yeah. We know that's the inspiration. You don't need to hammer it in. You know what would be interesting? What would be interesting? If they bring in references to Elizabeth Bartley. Now, that's a little... That's it. It's not coming from Dracula the novel, but um, there is a legend, and actually one of the Castlevania games actually did this. Um, they took inspiration from an actual person in history, um, and named her Elizabeth Bartley. And she's said to be like Vlad the Impaler's cousin. And so in Dracula, she's Dracula's niece, I think. Is Um, that the woman who would take her maids and use their blood to like bathe in and make herself, her skin look young? I don't know. Maybe. I think the big thing is that she always tries to resurrect Dracula. Um, so like, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like if, if we're just talking strictly a series based only on the novel, that probably wouldn't work. But like, if it mm-hmm. did spawn off into one of those never ending series, I would like to see her as a character. Okay. Um, Cause That'd I think be that would be really interesting. Someone it, who tries to resurrect Dracula. Yeah. If they ever, because right now it's just slated for a miniseries, so I assume they're going to stick to the traditional Dracula story. Yeah. But if it does get popular and they do want to expand, I think that would be an interesting interesting way for it to go. Yes. Uh, so we've talked about what we want to see. Let's talk about who we want to see. <laughs> uh, we're going to kind of do a, a dream cast of who we want to play our 
are macabre characters of Dracula. Uh, so let's start off. Uh, should we start off with Dracula or should we I lead? think we should build up to that. All right, let's build up to Dracula. He's, he's, he's the big guy. He's the all big right. man. He's the he's the hot shot with the sick mustache. All right, all right. So I'll go in. I'll kind of go in um, ascending order of okay. probably importance. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about Renfield. Renfield's a character that, you know, a lot of people don't think about when they think Dracula. You think of Dracula. You think of Mina. You think of the suitors and Lucy. Renfield is a crazy character and would be so much fun to play, especially in the Bela Lugosi version. The image of Renfield in the ship just looking up with those crazy eyes, it stays with you. Mm-hmm. And Renfield could be such a powerful player in the miniseries. So who, Steven, do you want to play Renfield? So this and I think is... we might have the same one too. Yes. Um, this is someone, when you describe someone who can play versatility, because, you know, there's times where Renfield has to act civilized, and then there's time where he's just going crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to divorce him from that 1930s version where he's got that weird laugh, but it's so difficult not to, cause it's so iconic. <laughs> and I think a good person to kind of capture that same sort of, uh, versatility would be none other than Mr. Andy Serkis. Yes. Yes. You chose him too. Yes. I chose Andy Serkis as Redfield. Yes. Mm. We're on the same page. My precious. Because he can, he can play, he can play crazed, he can play sympathetic, which it, at times Renfield is sympathetic when he betrays oh, yeah. Dracula to tell Mina like you need like you need to go, you need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. So he needs to be able to play both parts, and I think Andy Circus is perfect for that. Like I, I do, like it's been a while since I read the book, but I do seem to recall some parts where I felt sorry for him whenever he. Uh, had to, you know, go after uh, the heroes. And yeah. You almost get a sense like like he's under Dracula's control is what it is. Yeah. And Agreed. It is sad. So, yeah. and Andy Serkis has proven time and again that he can play that tragic angle really well without compromising the character's motivations. Agreed. Totally so. agree. Uh, well, going up, uh, let's talk about some suitors. Let's talk about Lucy's three gentlemen that are vying. <laughs> three gentlemen callers. Her three gentlemen callers. With oh, all the... the passion of Tennessee Williams. Well, speaking of Tennessee, we might not have any Tennessee, <laughs> but we have a Texan. And Marcus, we're going to do you proud and find some justice for the Texan. <laughs> Mr. Quincy. Quincy. Uh, let, let's cast some Quincy. Uh, now, nowadays... When I think of kind of not not necessarily Southern actors, but someone who gives off the machismo of a sort of character like that, I'm not gonna lie. I think of Chris Pratt. <laughs> That's and a I'm, really good choice. I'm thinking mostly of things like from Hateful Eight or even some Jurassic World. He has that kind of bravado. Of someone who has that. And I think he could do a decent death scene. 
Because I don't know if you know this, but Quincy is the one that stabs Dracula. He's the one that kills Dracula. Because don't mess with Texas. Exactly. So <laughs> my pick for Quincy is Chris Pratt. That is, that's interesting. Who'd you pick? Well, I guess I'm going to have to choose a different one because, uh, ladies and gentlemen at home, we actually know somebody who <laughs> is perfect for this role. But you're not going to know his name. His name is Mr. Dalton Cole. He looks like Quincy. He sounds like Quincy. And he can have the charisma of Quincy. You're not wrong. That's the funny thing. You're not wrong. I am not. (laughs) But nobody knows who that is. So I'll go with someone who might be more recognizable to you all. Um uh, you know, it's kind of similar to what you're saying about the qualities of Chris Pratt. I would almost, I'm, now that you've said Chris Pratt, I'm kind of like, well, that might be actually be a better choice. I don't know. I'm thinking Bradley Cooper was someone who came to mind. Uh, oh, that's a good one. Like, I feel like he could play good. the charisma and that charm. Um, I'm not, I don't, I'm, I don't know about the voice, but I don't know. Maybe. So, you know. Yeah, I like it. I think that's a good choice, especially after seeing his star is born. He he has that Texas. He, he has that Texas okay. about him. Uh, all right, so moving on to another suitor. Let's talk about Dr. Seward. Um, for those of you who may not be so familiar with the Dracula characters who are not Dracula or Mina, uh, Dr. Seward is head of the asylum in which Renfield is held, and he is also vying for the affection of Daryl Lucy. I think someone who could play Seward pretty well is uh, Tom Hiddleston. Ooh. Um, I, I'm not going to lie. I think Tom Hiddleston would also be a good Dracula. But I kind of see him playing the Doctor more. I want to see him play someone who's not Loki. Someone a little bit closer to his character from Crimson Peak. Mm-hmm. Where he, he has a charm about him, but also pretty intelligent. Yeah. I don't know. What about you? Sort of going off of the, that uh, quiet intelligence almost. I wanted to go with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Interesting. Now, I will I will admit that it has been a while since I read the novel, so I may not be exactly remembering uh, all of the details of this character. But I'm thinking, you know, guy who runs the ward and then also is able to go with them and figure things out, you know, that doesn't scream like elderly man to me. Yeah. Um, you know, he's got to keep pace with the other guys and he's still got to be young enough to be somewhat, you know, reasonable to be going after, uh, Oh God, is it Lucy or Mina? I've totally blanked. Which one are we talking about? Lucy. Lucy. Yes. Okay. So, you know, I, I, I kind of think Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he's got that kind of quiet intelligence. He always looks like he's trying to figure things out, even if he doesn't quite know the exact answer. (laughs) He just has that look of trying to figure something out. All right. I'll buy it. I'll buy it. Yeah. All right. What about Arthur? I know Arthur is, he's pretty like an upstanding gentleman, a bit of status. Um, he's not, he's not a doctor. He's not, he's just kind of a, the, the typical Victorian gentleman 
that you would think of? Kind of, yeah. Well. Who, who do you have in mind for this? Because I struggled with this. And I'm still not sure if I have the right answer. So know, who did you say? That's good because, you know, I put down Martin Freeman for this role. <laughs> which I think, oh. I think I would have to say maybe Martin Freeman like 10 years ago. It would be possible. I mean, Stephen Moffat is in charge of this and Martin Freeman was his Watson. That's true. But he's also almost like 50 years old now. And, and true, you know, 1800s, not uncommon for older men to be courting younger women, but (laughs) I could just, I I don't know how much younger my second option for this would be. Um, Jude Law, maybe. I, I can kind of see Jude Law a little bit more. He has okay. more of that like gentlemanness. Yeah. Also, also played Holmes or uh, Watson. <laughs> so you're so. just picking Watsons or Arthur <laughs> yeah. Arthur Watson. Yeah. Uh, you I, know who I think would be perfect would be uh, Dawson from the Great Mouse Detective. Oh, um, <laughs> my gosh. Although you Ooh, mentioned you mentioned Martin Freeman, and now I just have this image of Van Helsing telling Arthur about vampires and him just looking to the camera and sighing. Yeah. Just being like, what, what, the what's wrong with my fiancé? <laughs> um, honestly, the only person I could really think of, and it's probably just because I have him on the brain right now with, uh, the Spy Who Dumped Me coming out on DVD soon and Outlander starting up again. But I pick Sam Hewen. He's, after watching Sam Hewen, he's, his character, he is a, he's a spy, but he's very, he's a very British spy. He's a very gentleman in a tuxedo. And I think if you put that in a Victorian setting, I think he would make a decent Arthur. And he has, he's very handsome. He has that kind of look about him. Like, he looks like he would be a noble in that time. So, that's why I picked him. But I honestly think Arthur could be played by any sort of upstanding, handsome Brit. So, I think Arthur is open to interpretation. Listeners, if you have any idea who you want to play Arthur in the BBC series, let us know. Shall we move on? We shall. Now we're getting to the secondary characters which was the tertiary these are the secondary the the tertiary um so (laughs) i tell you what let's talk about let's talk about van helsing i'm just gonna say not hugh jackman i'm sorry okay okay uh, uh, okay i know that movie is bad but it's one of my favorites it's my guilty (laughs) pleasure movie i know that movie has flaws but gosh if i don't love it (laughs) Hey, hey, no judge, all God's children. (laughs) I've actually, okay, I I really can't complain. I've never seen it. I just remember. You've never seen Van Helsing? Well, I just remember. terrible, but wonderful at the same time. It came out in that time where you could tell from the trailers, like, how bad the movies were going to (laughs) be. Like, it was like, oh, wow, this looks worse than a PlayStation 2 game. Like, (laughs) the (laughs) graphics were so awful. And, like, I was, like, comparing everything to Lord of the Rings at the time. And I was like, it doesn't look even half as good as that. This is, like, not even half as good as The Mummy Returns. It's like, yeah. Same director, though. Stephen Summers. Oh, my God. What happened to you, Stephen? 
Universal. Summers. That's what happened to him. Oh, Stephen. No. Um, but you yeah, change it's, the spelling to your name. And it's not a great movie by any means, but it's it's entertaining. Okay. Maybe so, I should still give it a watch. But let's go back to this Van Helsing. Now, we're talking someone, a pretty, let's go with a, a seasoned actor. Someone who can play maybe a little quirky, but also very knowledgeable and tough and very determined. And not Anthony Hopkins. He was, yes. I will say, he's one of the bright spots of the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula. Because he's just fun. Yes. You can tell he's having the time of his life in that movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, Stephen, who who do you have for Van Helsing? So, I kind of went back and forth on this, thinking, like, okay, I remember him, like, you know, kind of an upstanding, I wouldn't say vaguely quirky, but still respected, for the most part, in society as a doctor. And then, someone who's got to be able to pull off the whole, don't discard the supernatural fables and be taken seriously. And when I think of someone, an actor who can kind of pull off all those uh, qualities, I think of Peter Capaldi. Ooh! Um, oh my gosh! Which... Steven, <laughs> yes! Peter yes. Capaldi as Van Helsing is the best thing you've ever said! Thanks? <laughs> <laughs> Question mark? <laughs> You do say good things, but oh my gosh, I agree with you 100%. Like, I okay, I didn't, I never watched Doctor Who, but I mean, I've seen clips, I've seen, you know, bits of him acting, and I just kind of think, like, mm, he'd make a good Van Helsing. I like that. I was, I was going to say Kenneth Branagh, but... Also a good choice. But Peter Capaldi, that wins, okay. that wins the day. All right, you hear that, BBC? BBC act together get on it get all five of those British actors that you have together yes Peter Capaldi's Van Helsing needs to happen yes all right so let's talk about uh let's talk about another uh gentleman of the Dracula universe uh let's talk about Jonathan Harker now this is a character he he himself is a gentleman he's not as maybe noble as Arthur would be uh, very intelligent, very caring, um, but also someone who has to play someone very out of his element. You have this guy who's coming from England being thrust into this world of people climbing up castle walls and ladies biting necks and weird people putting uh, dirt into crates. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then sleeping in that dirt. And then sleeping in that dirt. But someone who also is willing to do anything to protect his friends and his loved ones. I struggled with this one, too. This was like Arthur. I think a lot of people could play Jonathan Harker. As long as they're not Keanu Reeves. Thou art a villain, dude. It's the same man. He's grown young again. (laughs) Um, Is, was that a British accent, Keanu? I don't know yes, it what was. that was. <laughs> I I said James McAvoy. That is a good choice, actually. That's it's, not a bad choice. It's I'm not I'm not I'm still not a hundred percent on it. Mm-hmm. But I was just kind of going through a list of actors. I was like, yeah, 
You make a pretty good Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I... What'd you say? I could see Daniel Radcliffe doing this. <gasps> oh! Um, yeah, yeah, I, know, I could. I know people immediately think of Harry Potter, um, but he's actually moved on quite a bit as an actor from that. Yeah, and he's um, done, like, works... He's done kind of horror movies before in this setting. Yes. The woman... Is it The Woman in White? Woman um, in Black? Black, I think, yeah. Woman, woman in um, White is an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. Woman in Black. <laughs> yes. And he's way more emotive nowadays. Like, he, even he has said, like, you know, when he was playing Harry Potter, he felt like he was just kind of one note the whole time. Yeah. Um, he was also a kid. He was. He was. And... Um, I think, you know, Jonathan Harker needs to be able to play that sort of naive young man in a new world kind of air that I got from him. Like this is his first major assignment as a, uh, not an apprentice anymore, but he's moving on and Mm -hmm. um, he's getting engaged and everything. So he still has to have some of that naivety, but then when the going gets tough, he's got to be able to, you know, you know, take names and put boots to asses i guess a little bit too family show steven this is a family show i'll bleep For it kids. out <laughs> it, yeah 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 i think if we keep it tvpg we're good <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah but i i like daniel radcliffe i think that's a really good choice mm-hmm. all right enough of the men let's get to the ladies let's get to the ladies of dracula starting with lucy <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, another trope that I hate is people portraying Lucy as a loose sort of woman. Yeah. A lot of people see her as being very flirtatious. Just because she has three men wanting to marry her does not mean that she is a slut. Lucy's not a slut. No. And you know who I would really love to play Lucy? I struggled with this, but then when this actress came to my mind, I was like, this, yep, that's her. Amelia Clark. Ooh. Miss Daenerys Targaryen. Because she can do both innocent and frightening. That is a really good choice. Because Lucy is another person who has to play multiple characters. You have this, you have this tragic figure. She did nothing to provoke Dracula, he was like, "Yay, you you look like a good snack. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come drink your blood." Nom, 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 nom. Stop! Stop! <laughs> stop it. Never make that noise again. I want to suck your blood. So she has she has to play the innocent character who dies because of what Dracula has done to her, but she also has to play the blue for lady. This mysterious figure who comes and steals children in the middle of the night who when the men encounter her again she is this terrifying creature who both can lure you in with her beauty and her charm but who is also ready to kill you and drink your blood yes so she has to be able to play both and i really think amelia clark can do that hmm yeah see my pick was for Emma Stone, because I think Ooh, she could okay. do that, too. Okay. Now, she's not British. No, but she is playing 
there's a movie coming out called The Favorite. Yes. Which, so, I'll, I'll, I have to see how she does in that with her accent. Yes. I know she can act. There's no doubt of that. Mm-mm. Yeah. I had to, had to uh, I gotta check on the accent on that one. <laughs> see if it's too, like, eh. Is it too, is it basically the British equivalent of, um, oh gosh, uh, Dr. Strange's American accent? <laughs> but maybe not so far as Dick Van Dyke's Cockney accent. Yeah, that's true. That is true. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, that's, that's a good one. That's a good one. What about Mina? Oh, Mina. Mina, oh, Mina, 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 Mina. One of my favorite fictional ladies. I love Mina Harker. I love her in the book. I want to see her done right. And someone who I think can do her right is a Miss Jenna Coleman. Hmm. Jenna Coleman. Um, she's not, uh, unless you're a nerd like I am, She her name isn't that big, like, like the Chris Pratt's or the Tom Hiddleston's now. But she was made famous in Doctor Who. She played Clara against Peter Capaldi's Doctor. Uh, she is currently playing Queen Victoria in the BBC, or is it, it's either BBC or PBS's uh, Victoria series. She's someone that just has a lot of charm to her. She can someone who played very intelligent, but also really witty and really hold her own as a character like this. So my pick for Mina is Jenna Coleman. I was going to say Felicity Jones, but there's there's a little too much innocence in the era of Felicity Jones for me. And I need someone like Jenna who can combat Lucy's innocence. I'm not gotcha. saying Mina is, isn't innocent, because she is, but it's in a different sort of way than Lucy. Who do, who do you have for Mina? I promise I did not pick this because I wanted to see Harry and Hermione get together. <laughs> It was only because it was just like I wrote down Emily Blunt because that was one name Ooh. that had popped up. But the more I kind of think about it, I feel like there's a bit of an age discrepancy there. Yeah. Um, and I think it would probably make a little more sense if I was going with Daniel Radcliffe as Harker, then Mina might better be played by Emma Watson. Okay. Um, which, you know, I think. I think that'd be interesting to see. That would be interesting. The only thing that that kind of scares me about that is that Mina is a a bit bookish, and I don't want Emma Watson to be pigeonholed into those kind of roles. Uh, like I, I'm not opposed to it. I think she would make a pretty good Mina. I just also want to see her do more things. She had something kind of like that in movies like Colonia or The Bling Ring. Yes, that's true. I like it. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the piece de resistance. Who do we want to play Dracula? Steven. Okay, so before I say who I want to play Dracula, I thought of something else that I wanted out of this series Mm -hmm. and it's actually based on a plot idea that I wanted to make into a movie myself until I found out that apparently there's a movie and works about it 
and I know they're just going to screw it up, but whatever. I'm going to spoil the <laughs> plot right here and right now so you know that I had a good idea and then Warner Brothers dropped the ball on it. Um, one episode that focuses not on the main people, not on Dracula, not on Renfield, but on the crew of the Demeter. <gasps> yes! Oh my gosh, that would be so good! And the whole episode plays out like a, almost like, and then there were none, where each night <gasps> the night crew starts disappearing one by one. Stephen, can you please write for this series? Please, because I, I need this to happen. I, uh, mm, I want to see this happen so bad. But like, basically, um, basically, uh, you know, the first murder, you know, someone disappears and they think, oh, he must have fallen overboard during the night. Mm-hmm. But then the second night it happens, that's when they start suspecting each other. And then it just keeps getting worse and worse. And they keep trying to solve the mystery. Who is it? Who is it? And then finally it ends with the classic image where there's just the, um, there's just the captain of the ship left. And, you know, he's got Tied his cross. The... Yeah. He's tying himself to the mast and that's when the door opens and he sees Dracula played by and it's not revealed until he's shown on screen benedict cumberbatch (sighs) what all right i like it i like it i like that choice a lot i think he could play a really good dracula i feel like he could yeah he he has that sort of strange presence about him in both his voice and his appearance that could make for a, a very good vampire and he's proven, like, with his acting, like, he's got it. Mm-hmm. He could do a great Dracula. I think that's a really good choice. Thank you. Also, Who I did need you that. I need that Demeter episode yes. to happen. That's a great idea. Like, if they make that into an episode, I don't care if the rest of the show sucks. That mm-hmm. will be my new favorite show on Dracula. Mm-hmm. Because it's just like, like, reading the novel, I felt like... You could almost make a whole story based just on this, and it ends with finding out who is Dracula, and then it ends with Dracula setting foot on London, setting it up for the terror he's going to unleash there. Now, how like, would you how would you do the episodes with Jonathan? So, what you could do really is just kind of. Like, there's several ways you could do it. I mean, you could always come back and then show, like, what happened before. Um, You could, uh, I don't know, you could almost go out of order and kind of show, like, maybe, um, like, maybe that's what you do. Maybe you kind of show Jonathan getting tortured um, while Dracula takes off and you don't really know what Dracula's up to. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. You could almost do something like that. But I really do just want one episode just about the Demeter. You don't show anything else. It's kind of like it's it's what they did with Jaws. Uh, when that once they get on the boat, you don't see any signs of land. Mm-hmm. So it kind of adds to that isolation of not being able to just turn around. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of what I'm envisioning, I guess. Okay. Um, like it. But 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 who did who? What was your who was your pick for Dracula? So I I thought about Benedict Cumberbatch too. He he was on my list. He's probably my number two to play Dracula. But oh, then he's I, your Christopher Lee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh. <laughs> oh no, I'm sad. Well, no, I mean, he was, he was, he was, I think, decided to be the second best Dracula actor. Like, literally, that's his title. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I, I kind of thought of something else. Mm-hmm. So, I thought, what if Dracula wasn't the, you know, the, what if he wasn't that typical, like, young-ish sort? What if we had a seasoned Dracula? Which Bela Lugosi wasn't too young when he made that movie. Neither was mm. Christopher Lee. He kind of had a silver fox thing going on. So I kind of think my pick is going to have to be Jeremy Irons as Dracula. <gasps> Scar himself? Scar himself. He still has the voice. He still has that presence. And he's got that sick mustache. He, he could pull off a sick mustache. <laughs> That's the most important thing. If you can't pull off a sick mustache, you can't be Dracula. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm actually surprised he's never played something like this before. I'm looking at his IMDP page and I'm trying to find if he's ever played Dracula before. I'm not seeing anything. I think he would be... I think he'd be great. That's a really, really interesting choice. I would never have thought about that, but now that you mention it and describe it, I think it's a good choice, too. Thank you. Like, I almost feel like the trap with casting Dracula would be to try and make him, like, a teen heartthrob. Like, I feel like... I feel like that's what so many recent incarnations of Dracula have tried to do... And I I get it to an extent, you know, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's been done to death talking about how Dracula is like a metaphor for yearning and all that. But I, I, I feel like if you kind of pander to just a teen heartthrob, you know, it really kind of, and I don't want to try and make it sound like, you know, teenagers don't deserve entertainment either, but... I feel like it doesn't do them any favors either. I feel like it's almost condescending to like a lowest common denominator. It's not trying to elevate the material. It's trying to like maybe dumb it down for modern audiences or something. And, Mm -hmm. you know, teens aren't stupid. They don't want to be condescended to like that. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. you can find an attractive Dracula without making him like a backstreet boy. Uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So BBC, if you're listening, th- this is who you need to cast. Decide yes. on your own which version you want to pick from. And make sure that ship episode happens. Are you listening? You're listening, right? I've got some ideas. Just saying. We got ideas. You You should hire us. Yes. We're experts. Yes. I played Castlevania Bloodlines once. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stephen, the full moon is about to set and it's time for this podcast to come to a close. No. I think I think we did pretty good. I miss Marcus though. We should 
Uh, I've got that 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 book of the dead. I found it at Hamanoptera. <laughs> oh, we we yes. should use it, and then by the next time for the next episode, we shall raise Marcus Sally back from the dead to join us once more because we miss him. Wait a minute! You were actually at Hamanoptera. <laughs> oh, I love that movie. It's so good. We're not talking about the movie tonight. Tonight is about Dracula. And tonight has come to an end. Stephen, where can the folks at home find you? Folks at home, head over to YouTube. You can find uh, my channel for, uh, you know, fun, older works. Just type in Stephen's Workshop. Be sure to check out our excellent movie, 4D. It's awesome. Uh, and you can also check out my more professional stuff over on Bailey's Film Workshop. Um, also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can just uh, follow me at Bailey's Workshop. Lindley, where can the folks at home find you? <laughs> folks at home, you can mostly find me on Instagram at LittleLottie. That's little L-O-T-T-I-E. I've been posting a lot of my New York Comic Con photos. Had a great time this year. We're so grateful to meet all of you to have all these opportunities uh, pop up. Um, I am also on, I'm going to be posting some of these pictures, also on Facebook at Little Lottie, one word, cosplay. And yeah, you follow me there. I need, I need to get back on Twitter for this purpose only. I don't, <laughs> I don't tweet anymore. I feel like I should tweet more, but I don't. I'm okay with that. Uh, but with all that said, uh, folks, if this is your first time listening to us, we're so glad you joined us for our Halloween episode. Please go follow us on all of the social media sites. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Join our film discussion group on Facebook. We're also, uh, I don't know where you're listening to us at. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Podmatic, all of these sites. We have a YouTube channel. I'll just follow us everywhere stalk us it's halloween it's the only time we you we will let you stalk us and with that said from all of us thank you so much for listening i'm sorry i'm a little scatterbrained right now because we did it we did it we did it we did Yay. it we survived we survived we survived we are the final girls steven we're the yeah. final girls Yes, we are. are. (laughs) Well, everyone, thank you so much for watching. Have a happy and safe Halloween. And from all of us to all of you, we wish you peace, love, and tranquility. Y'all take care now. Make good choices.